Alright, we're going to move on to sensation and perception. Um, so, let's get started. We are going to look at sensation and its receptors, including the eyes, the microcells, and the ear, and the complex brain functions associated with processing sensory information. We'll look at vestibular sense, taste, smell, somatic sensation, and kinesthetic sense. And, yeah. So, sensation aligns with transduction, which means taking the physical, electromagnetic, auditory, and other information from our internal and external environment and converting this information into electrical signals in the nervous system. Sensation is performed by receptors in the peripheral nervous system, which flow with the stimuli to the central nervous system in the form of action potentials and neurotransmitters. Sensation can be thought of as a raw signal, which is unfiltered and unprocessed until it enters the central nervous system. Perception refers to processing this information within the central nervous system in order to make sense of the information's significance. The complex manipulations involved in perception include external sensory experience and the internal activities of the brain and the spinal cord. Perception helps us make sense of the world and the difference is that the challenge of creating artificial intelligence so we can create sensors for robots to pick up information but teaching them how to comprehend and respond is pretty much impossible. So sensory receptors are neurons that respond to stimuli by triggering electrical signals that carry information to the central nervous system. Physical objects outside of the body are referred to as distal, so in the distance. They produce photons, sound waves, heat, pressure, or other stimuli that directly interact with sensory receptors. And the sensory stimulating byproducts are called proximal stimuli, um, which in close proximity. That's another way to think of it. So a campfire is a distal stimulus. The photons that are emitted by the fire, the sounds of the cracking and the popping, and the gas particles that transfer heat energy are all proximal stimuli. So they directly interact and affect the sensory receptors <clears throat> and inform the observer about the presence of distal stimuli. Sensory receptors, oh. Okay. So sensory receptors may encode multiple aspects of a stimulus, some photoreceptors can respond to light and encode the brightness and its color and shape. This relationship between the physical nature of the stimuli and the sensations and perceptions the stimuli evoke is studied in the field of psychophysics. So in order to inform the central nervous system, the signals from these stimuli must pass through specific sensory pathways, and in each case, in each case there are different types of receptors are generally nerve endings for specific sensory cells. These receive the stimulus, transduce it into electrical signals, and transfer the data to the central nervous system through sensory ganglia. Ganglia are collections of neuron cell bodies found outside the central nervous system, and once the transduction from these sensory ganglia occurs, electrochemical energy is sent along neural pathways to various production areas in the brain, which further analyze sensory input. Um, there's over a dozen organized sensory receptors. Um, the most heavily tested would be listed here. So photoreceptors respond to electromagnetic waves in the visible spectrum, so sight. Mechanoreceptors respond to pressure or movement. 
Hair cells respond to movement of fluid in the inner ear structures, so this involves movement, vibration, feeling, rotational, and linear acceleration. We've got nociceptors, which respond to painful or noxious stimuli, so somatosensation. Thermoreceptors respond to changes in temperature, so thermosensation. Osmoreceptors respond to the osmolarity of the blood, water, homeostasis. Olfactory receptors respond to volatile compounds, so smell. And taste receptors respond to dissolved compounds, taste. Um, so, to look at perception, um, all sensory information is sent to the central nervous system in the form of action potentials, which the central nervous system must then interpret and act upon. Um, but the same sensation can produce radically different perceptions to different people. Um, and it's considered a part of psychology because of that. So a good example of the psychological element of perception is threshold, the minimum amount of a stimulus that renders a difference in perception. So there's three different types of threshold, the absolute threshold, the threshold of conscious perception, and the difference threshold. So the absolute threshold is the minimum of stimulus energy that is needed to activate a sensory system. This threshold is a threshold in sensation, not in perception. All systems have an absolute threshold below which the stimulus will not be transfused into action potentials, and the information will therefore never be sent to the central nervous system. Um, so like for a sweet taste, it could be a teaspoon of sucrose dissolved in two gallons of water. Um, then we've got the threshold of conscious perception. So the level of intensity that a stimulus must pass in order to be consciously perceived by the brain is the threshold of conscious perception. Information that's received by the central nervous system but does not cross this threshold is called subliminal perception. The difference between absolute and this threshold is that stimulus below the absolute threshold will not be transduced and thus never reach the central nervous system. A stimulus below the threshold of conscious perception arrives at the central nervous system but does not reach the higher order brain regions that control attention and consciousness. And yeah. The third threshold is the difference threshold, sometimes called the just noticeable difference between two stimuli. The difference threshold refers to the minimum change in magnitude required for an observer to perceive that two different stimuli are in fact different. If the difference between stimuli is below the difference threshold, the two stimuli will seem to the observer to be the same. So like sound waves, you can have difference differences in frequency, but the lack of formal ear training or whatnot will cause the two pitches to sound the same. And this example kind of illustrates discrimination testing. In a common discrimination testing experiment, a participant is presented with a stimulus the stimulus is then varied slightly, and the researchers will ask the participant to report whether they perceive change, and the difference continues to be increased until the participant reports they notice the change, and this interval is recorded as the just noticeable difference. So, Ernst Heinrich Weber was credited with the observation that difference thresholds are proportional and must be computed as percentages. 
also known as Weber's Law, so it applies to the perception of a number of senses, including loudness and pitch of sounds, the perception of brightness of light, and the perception of weight of objects. So, perception of stimuli can also be affected by non-sensory factors, such as experiences, memory, motives, and expectations. Signal detection theory studies how internal, psychological, and external environmental factors influence thresholds of sensation and perception. So, in signal detection theory, um, you can have an experiment that consists of many trials. During each trial, a stimulus or signal may or may not be presented. Trials in which the signal is presented are called noise trials, whereas those in which the signal is not presented are called catch trials. After each trial, the subject is asked to indicate whether or not a signal was presented. So there's four possible outcomes. A hit is a trial in which the signal is presented and the subject correctly perceives it. A miss is a trial in which the subject fails to perceive the signal. False alarm is a trial where the subject indicates that he or she perceives the signal even though the signal was not presented. And a correct negative is a trial in which the subject correctly identifies that there was no signal. Um, so our ability to detect, to detect stimulus can change over time through adaptation, and it can have both a physiological sensory component and a psychological perceptual component. Um, so like our pupils dilating in the dark, constricting in the light. We can also adapt to somatosensory stimuli, so cold water doesn't seem so cold once we get used to it. Um, yeah, it's one way the mind and the body try to focus attention only on the most relevant stimuli. So we will move on to vision. It's the only sense where an entire lobe of the brain is devoted, which is the occipital lobe. So let's start with the anatomy of the eye. Um, so the eye is a specialized organ that is used to detect light in the form of photons. Most of the exposed portion of the eye is covered by a thick structural layer known as the sclera, or the white of the eye. It doesn't cover the frontmost portion of the eye, the cornea. The eye is supplied with nutrients by two sets of blood vessels, the colloidal vessels, which is a complex intermingling of blood vessels between the sclera and the retina, and then we have the retinal vessels. The innermost layer of the eye is the retina, which contains the actual photoreceptors that transduce light into electrical information that the brain can process. So when you enter the eye, the light passes first through the cornea, which is a clear dome-like window in the front of the eye, which gathers and focuses the incoming light. The front of the eye is divided into the anterior chamber, which lies in front of the iris, the colored part of the eye. Um, and the posterior chamber is between the iris and the lens. The iris is composed of two muscles, the dilator pupillae, which opens the pupil under sympathetic stimulation, and the constrictor pupillae, which constricts the pupil under parasympathetic stimulation. The iris is continuous with the choroid, which is a layer of vascular connective tissue that surrounds and provides nourishment to the retina. The iris is also continuous with the ciliary body, which produces the aqueous humor that bathes the front part of the eye before draining into the canal of Schlem. The lens lies right behind the iris and helps control the refraction of the incoming light. Contraction of the ciliary muscle, a component of the ciliary, ciliary body, is under parasympathetic control. As the muscle contracts, it pulls on the suspensory ligaments and changes the shape of the lens to focus on an image as the distance varies, which is also known as accommodation. Behind the lens lies the vitreous humor, a transparent gel that supports the retina. So the retina is in the back of the eye, and it's like a screen with a lot of neural elements and blood vessels. It 
converts incoming photons of light to electrical signals and is part of the central nervous system and develops an outgrowth of brain tissue. The duplexity or duplicity theory of vision states that the retina contains two kinds of photoreceptors, those that are specialized for light and dark detection and those for color detection. The retina has 6 million cones and 120 million rods. Cones are used for color vision and sense fine details, most effective in bright light and come in three forms, which are named for the wavelengths of light that they best absorb. So short S is also called blue, medium is M called green, and long is L called red. So cones are for color, rods are for reduced light. Um, Rods are more functional than cones in reduced illumination because each rod is highly sensitive to photons and easier to stimulate than a cone cell. Um, they only have a single pigment type called rhodopsin, and color vision usually requires far more light because each color responds to only to certain wavelengths, and a rod can stimulate be stimulated by any color light. Um, they only allow sensation of light and dark and as a whole they're less useful for detecting fine details because they're spread over a much larger area of the retina. The macula has a high concentration of cones and the fovea contains only cones. It's the centermost region of the macula. When you move further away from the fovea, the concentration of rods increases while the cone concentration decreases. So visual acuity is best at the fovea and the fovea is most sensitive in normal daylight vision. Um, some distance away from the center of the retina, the optic nerve leaves the eye, and this region of the retina, which is devoid of photoreceptors, is called the optic disc and gives rise to a blind spot. Um, so rods and cones are specialized neurons and they connect with other neurons through synapses, but they don't connect directly to the optic nerve. So there's several layers of neurons in between, so they synapse directly with bipolar cells, which highlight gradients between adjacent rods or cones. These bipolar cells then synapse with ganglion cells, the axons of which group together to form an optic nerve. And then these bipolar and ganglion cells fall in between the rods and cones and optic nerve, and they also are located in front of the rods and cones, closer to the front of the eye. So that means a photon must actually navigate past several layers of cells to reach the rods and the cones at the back of the retina. Then the information is then transmitted forward in the form of action potentials from the rod and cone cells until the signal reaches the ganglion cells. So, as the number of receptors that converge through the bipolar neurons onto one ganglion cell increases, the resolution decreases, and the number of cones converging onto an individual ganglion cell is smaller for cones than for rods. So that helps explain why color vision has greater sensitivity to fine detail than black and white vision does. We also have mucrin and horizontal cells, which receive input from multiple retinal cells in the same area before the information is passed on to ganglion cells. Homocrine and horizontal cells can accentuate slight difference between the visual information in each bipolar cell. So like edge detection, they can increase our perception of contrasts. And then we've got some visual pathways. This is the anatomical connections between the eyes and the brain and to the flow of visual information along these connections. So each eye's right visual field projects onto the left half of each eye's retina and vice versa. As a signal travels through the optic nerves towards the brain, the first significant event occurs at the optic chiasm. So the fibers here from the nasal half of each retina will cross paths, and because the temporal fibers do not cross in the chiasm, 
This reorganization means that all fibers corresponding to the left visual field from both eyes project into the right side of the brain, and all fibers corresponding to the right visual field from both eyes project into the left side of the brain. These reorganized pathways are called optic tracts once they leave the optic chiasm. And then from the optic chiasm, the information goes to several different places in the brain. Some nerve fibers pass through the lateral diriculate nucleus of the thalamus where they synapse with nerves that then pass through radiations on the temporal and parietal lobes of the visual cortex and the occipital lobe. Other nerve fibers pass through the superior follicles, which controls some reflexive responses to visual stimuli and reflexive eye movements. Um, so to effectively interact with the environment, we also have to be able to make sense of visual stimuli. So we have visual parallel processing, which is the brain's ability to analyze information regarding color, form, motion, and depth all simultaneously or in parallel using independent pathways in the brain. So cones are responsible for color perception. So form refers not only to the shape of an object, but our ability to discriminate an object of interest from the background by detecting its boundaries. Neurons carrying information from the fovea and surrounding central portion of the retina synapse with parvocellular cells in the lateral geniculate nucleus. These cells have very high color spatial resolution, so they permit us to detect very fine detail when thoroughly examining an object. Parvocellular cells can only work with stationary or slow-moving objects because these cells have very low temporal resolution. Then we have magnocellular cells. They are good for detecting motion because they have very high temporal resolution. They reflect the fact that form and motion are processed in parallel, um, so they're located in distinct layers of the lateral nucleus. Finocellular cells predominantly receive inputs from the periphery of our vision, allowing more rapid detection of objects approaching us from the sides. However, magnocellular cells have low spatial resolution, so the rich detail of an object can't really be seen once the object is in motion. Um, so magnocellular motion detection. Depth perception is our ability to discriminate the 3D shape of our environment and judge the distance of objects within it, and it's based on the discrepancies between the inputs the brain receives from our two eyes. Specialized cells in the visual cortex, known as binocular neurons, are responsible for comparing the inputs to each hemisphere and detecting these differences. And then, of course, we need to know how to associate certain patterns of stimuli with expected behaviors or outcomes. So we've got feature detectors in the visual cortex. Each one, each feature detector cell type detects a very particular individual feature of an object in the visual field. So like a stop sign, there's a feature detector for the color red another for the white border and the letters, and another for the horizontal lines, and others for the angled lines of the octagon. So, yeah. That is it for the visual. And then I think we can go into hearing, and then We will stop at our other senses. Okay. So the ear is a complex organ responsible not only for our sense of hearing, but for our vestibular sense, which is our ability to both detect rotational and linear acceleration and use this information to inform our sense of balance and spatial orientation. Um, the ear is divided into three parts, outer, middle, and inner. The sound wave first reaches the cartilaginous outside part of the ear called the pinna or the oracle. The main function is to channel sound waves into the external auditory canal, which directs the sound waves to the tympanic membrane, aka the, the eardrum. 
membrane vibrates in phase with the incoming sound waves, and the frequency of the sound wave determines the rate at which the tympanic membrane vibrates, so it moves back and forth at a high rate for high frequency, and more slowly for low frequency. So louder sounds have greater intensity, which can correspond to an increased amplitude of vibration. The tympanic membrane divides the outer ear from the middle ear. The middle ear houses the three smallest bones in the body, called ossicles. They help transmit and amplify the vibrations of the tympanic membrane to the inner ear. We've got the malleus for the hammer. It's a fix of the tympanic membrane. It acts on the incus, the anvil, which acts on the stapes for the stirrup. The base plate of the stapes rests on the oval window of the cochlea, which is the entrance to the inner ear. And the middle ear is connected to the nasal cavity via the eustachian tube, which helps equalize pressure between the middle ear and the environment. The inner ear sits within a bony labyrinth, which is a hollow region of the temporal bone consisting of the cochlea, vestibule, and semicircular canals. Inside the bony labyrinth rests a continuous collection of tubes and chambers called the membranous labyrinth, which contains receptors for the sense of equilibrium and hearing. The membranous labyrinth is filled by a potassium-rich fluid called endolymph and is suspended within the bony labyrinth by a thin layer of another fluid called paralymph, which transmits vibrations from the outside world and cushions the inner membranes of the ear simultaneously. The cochlea is a spiral-shaped organ that contains the receptors for hearing. It is divided into three parts called scalae. All three scalae run the entire length of the cochlea. The middle scala houses the actual hearing apparatus, the organ of corti, which rests on a thin, flexible membrane called the basilar membrane. The organ of corti is composed of thousands of hair cells, which are bathed in endolymph. endolymph. On the top of the organ of corti is a relatively immobile membrane called the tectorial membrane. The other two scalae, filled with paralymph, surround the hearing apparatus and are continuous with the oval and round windows of the cochlea. So thus, sound entering the cochlea through the oval window causes vibrations in paralymph, which paralymph, which are transmitted to the vascular membrane, causing. Oops, I'm repeating myself. So the sound entering the cochlea through the oval window causes vibrations in paralymph, which are transmitted to the vascular membrane. So because fluids are incompressible, the round window, a membrane covered hole in the cochlea, permits the paralymph to actually move within the cochlea. The hair cells in the organ of corti transduce the transduce the physical stimulus into an electrical signal which is carried to the central nervous system by the auditory or vestibulocochlear nerve. The vestibule refers to the portion of the bony labyrinth that contains the utricle and the saccule. These are sensitive to linear acceleration so they're used as part of a balancing apparatus and determines one's orientation in the 3D space. They have modified hair cells covered with autoliths and as the body accelerates, these autoliths will resist that motion and dispense and stimulates the underlying hair cells, which send the signal to the brain. While the utricle and saccule are sensitive to linear acceleration, the three semicircular canals are sensitive to rotational acceleration. They're arranged perpendicularly to each other and end in a swelling called an ampulla, where the hair cells are located. When the head rotates and the lymph in a circular semicircular canal will resist this motion and then the underlying hair cells which send a signal to the brain. Then we've got the auditory pathways in the brain which are more complex than the visual pathways. Most sound information passes through the vestibulocochlear nerve to the brainstem where it sends to the medial geniculate nucleus of the thalamus. Then these nerve fibers will project to the auditory cortex and the temporal lobe for sound processing. Some can also be sent to the superior olive, which localizes the sound, and the inferior colliculus, which is involved in the startle reflex, and helps to keep the eyes fixed on a point while the head is turned, which is known as the vestibulo-ocular reflex. 
So lateral geniculate nucleus is for light. Medial geniculate nucleus is for music. I'll stop there.